I've believed for some time that though many of our churches can follow the biblical storyline, or at least have a high view of scripture and say they believe it, in fact, what's happening is their imaginations have been taken captive by other stories, and people are living out other stories than the Bible. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollo's Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Does theology matter? What do you think? Is it divisive? Is it uniting? I mean, what do we do with theology? What are the challenges in your mind that the church today is currently facing? What do we do about it? What about our culture? Do we need to interpret it? And what does it mean to be biblical? You know, when you get a chance to ask questions of one of the most influential theologians of the last 30 years, these are the kind of questions that you ask. And boy, oh boy, did we get some some good answers. You know, lots of people think that theology is not at all relevant to everyday life. Like, I don't want to talk about theology. I've got to take care of my kids. I got to deal with all the pressures. My son is online all day long. I'm, he's dealing with the screen. I mean, that's for you people that are in the ivory tower. And it doesn't have much to do with my everyday life. I mean, I appreciate it. I know it's there. It's great. It's wonderful. But, you know, it really doesn't affect me all that much. I mean, how many times have we heard that? How many times have we said that? But here's the deal. Theology does matter to everyday life. It's not about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, which I actually heard when I was an undergraduate. I mean, it was tongue in cheek, but that's actually how people used to talk about it. People would get into these minute details of theological matters, and it would be so far removed from everyday people. But that's not really what theology is about. In fact, theology done rightly is completely practical because it deals with where we are and why we are here. Theology deals with the big questions of life that all of us wrestle with sooner or later. And it challenges us not just to understand what we believe, but really understand how we approach life. I really wanted to talk to Kevin Van Hooser because I've read several of his books and because he rocks. I mean, that's just it. He was one of my profs in seminary, and I knew that he was a big deal. I had not heard of him until I got to seminary, but I knew he was a big deal when I heard other profs quote him. That tells you something, and he helped me understand so much. And what I loved about him is that he wasn't so much in the ivory tower that he didn't understand real life. I love the fact that he could bring all of his immense learning and knowledge into my world. And he can do the same to yours today. He helps us to really see what God is doing in the world. And this is a fantastic conversation. It's not terribly long. And we're still, though, breaking it into two because it is jam-packed with so much truth. Honestly, and I mean this in complete sincerity, you might want to listen twice to this because it's that good. Not me talking, him talking, okay? 
you'll get to know what makes a theologian tick, the concerns he has for the church today, and his very interesting take on what the Bible is. But before we get to him, we wanted to give you some exciting news. As of this week, we are now giving you two episodes per week. Rather than having to wait for the second conversation to drop a week later, we will give it to you in a matter of days. And secondly, we need your help. Yes, you. For the month of February, we're doing our 10 for 10 challenge. We're looking to get 10 new watering partners to help join us in this journey to water the world for Jesus, who will give at least... $10 a month. And if you've been blessed by this show, then sign up. It's two coffees at Starbucks. That's it. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. And by doing that, you are becoming a watering warrior, standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life to bring water where life is languishing. Now, with that in mind, let's get to my friend, Kevin Van Hooser. Happy listening. Kevin Van Hooser, welcome to Apollo's Water. Are you ready for the Fast Five? Uh, Let's see. (laughs) Number one, easy one. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Which kind? What do you? What's your favorite brew? Uh, dark. I don't want to give a you know a shout out to a company, but you know dark dark roasts. I like that. I like I like a good dark roast. All right. You also lived in Scotland for a while. I did. What is your favorite Scottish dish? Well, it's going to be a dessert. It's called millionaire shortbread. <laughs> Think of shortbread with caramel and chocolate. Millionaire for a day or at least for a few minutes. Oh, that sounds really good. Is there any place in the U.S. that has that? No, not really. We came back and they had these things called scones, but they look like boulders compared to what the Scots served us. <laughs> okay. Number three, when you are not researching, teaching or reading, writing, what is your favorite hobby? Uh, probably playing the piano. Are you a trained pianist? I am a trained pianist. Uh, I'm an amateur, someone who does it for the love of it, not for the money, but I got, you know, in college, I was playing and went fairly far. And I'm just trying to keep up what I, you know, my abilities such as they were. Wow. Who's your favorite composer? Well, it has to be Bach. Mm, Bach. Amazing, amazing man. Number four, since you talk about scones, I'm going to ask you, this is going to be a little bit more of a, a different question. But if you were a bakery, if you were a bakery, what bakery would you be and why? Or what kind of bakery? It would have to be a French bakery because though man shall not live by bread alone, the bread the French bakers make is really good. (laughs) (laughs) And since we're going to get into your work here in a moment, you talk a lot about drama. And uh, there was a conference in your honor where they even set up the whole platform as you as you and I talked about. I just learned this as a as a drama play. But if your life were a play. What would be the the title of it? And who would you have star as you? Phew. Um, there would be some kind of a quest, you know, there would have, it would, it was some kind of an adventure. I'd have to be trying to get somewhere and making efforts to get there. And there'd be complications, right? Because what's the story without conflict? <laughs> who would be me? Um, 
Well, uh, Paul Giamatti is a good actor. <laughs> so, we don't really look alike, but you know, he's a really good actor, and I think he'd try at least to do justice to to me. Oh, he would. I actually think he would do a great job. Yeah, I could see him with the beard. I could see him with that. And he's more interesting than me. So I think I would want to choose him. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. We know you're a theologian. We know you're a writer. You're very well respected among your colleagues, but very few people know your story. I mean, even knowing that you are a pianist, uh, that's not something I think most of us would be familiar with. Can you give us just a bit about your background and what brought you to the point of being a theologian today? And I know I'm asking a very large question, but just a, a quick synopsis of where you grew up and how you got to be a theologian. Yeah. So I'm a native Californian and my mother was born in California. You don't really meet people whose parents were born in California. So we go way back. Uh, I was not born into a Christian home. I was the only child, but Mm. I was born into a respectable home. And so my parents sent me to Sunday school at the right time. They did not go to church. They just somehow thought, I guess that was what people in the 50s and 60s were programmed to do, right? Send their Mm. kids to Sunday school. So I went off, but I came back with questions. And my mother couldn't answer my questions that I was bringing back from Sunday school. And so she read the Bible for herself and was convicted and became a Bible-believing Christian. So that was when I was three. (laughs) I think maybe I could even say the first person I led to Christ. Uh, was my mother. But That's so awesome. All, yeah. For all intents and purposes, though, I was raised in a Christian family because she had my father read the Bible and they both started attending church. And then, interestingly enough, uh, started looking for a church that my mother felt was biblical enough. And so that's part of my DNA, this question, what does it mean to be biblical? I was raising it as a child and then through my mother's concern that we attend a biblical church, it just got imprinted into me. So uh, happily, uh, one of the biblical churches we found was near Westmont College, because I grew up in the Santa Barbara area. Westmont Mm -hmm. College is a Christian liberal arts college. And so from a very young age, I was around Westmont College people, teachers. Mm -hmm. And one of the most important people in my life was a biblical scholar named Robert Gundry. 
uh, I later studied with him at Westmont. He taught me the New Testament. He was also the man who baptized me. And he was the man who eventually suggested I go into systematic theology. You know, when I when he first suggested that I was in college, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be a biblical scholar. And so initially I was I was kind of hurt that he said, don't be a New Testament scholar, be a systematic theologian. I'm thinking, you don't want me? <laughs> but, but in fact, I, I have to give him credit. I think he saw past my, you know, the desire to be like him. Mm. And he saw the kind of person I was, the range of interests. I'm not quite sure what he saw, but he, I think he was right. He told me to go into systematic theology. And he convinced me that at the time, at least, there was a more urgent need among evangelicals for systematic theologians and there were biblical scholars. Um, mm. And I think he was probably right at that about that at the time. So, you know, I took that seriously um, from that point on when he, when he gave me a clear direction, I followed it. I'm still following it. <laughs> That's incredible. I didn't know that you grew up in California and I didn't know that, that other part either. Where did the piano come in? Uh, you know, again, my parents thought that every young man should have piano lessons to be <laughs> well-cultured. And um, I, it only got serious, though, when I entered college and had a wonderful teacher who helped me to understand that playing the piano was much more about getting the notes right. Mm -hmm. And later in my life, uh, I've been able to use a lot of the lessons he taught me about performing music. Uh, in, in relation to performing the Bible. So I, I see lots of connection in God's providence. You know, it was more than just a musical instrument. It was a lesson in interpreting texts and mm. um, to the glory of God and making beauty and all sorts of things. I, I have to ask this one. This one is, wasn't one of the questions, but because you're a musician, because you're, you, you love piano, is there a favorite piano movie that you have? A favorite piano movie. A movie. Well, they like a, about a composer or about a musician or. There's a, there is a moving uh, film about Beethoven and having to compose and losing his hearing, you know. Uh, I forget the name of it, uh, but that that's just a compelling story. I, I've often struck by that thought, you know, a, a mm. composer who cannot actually hear what he's composed, but he can imagine it somehow. It's incredible to think of how he did that. I, I still yeah. have I have no idea on how that was accomplished. So you went into theology, and then you went off, and you you've taught now for how many years? You've been teaching. Well, can I theology. just fill in one blank, Travis? Sure, because uh, it fits in with music as well. Um, in college, I I did a music ministry in Europe over the summer as a pianist, and I met someone there who actually invited me back to France, this was, to direct a year-long program of evangelism using classical music. And I was 21. Wow. <laughs> and this just sounded fantastic to me. It was an opportunity to put my theological education to work in the sake of Christian mission in a country that was very secular. Mm. That, whole, that whole challenge. So I spent a year doing short-term mission, thinking through how to use classical music for mm. the sake of evangelism. And the other reason that's important is uh, I met my wife during that mission year, 
My wife is French. And so music, France and theology, they all mix together. <laughs> that is a, that's a pretty fascinating story. 21 years of age, they asked you to do that. Yeah, so quite, not, again, I'm not quite sure why. I, I think probably because he thought maybe it was just that he wanted me to be a kind of administrative assistant. But I actually took over. <laughs> <laughs> That's I mean, pretty. I, I, I came with ideals, right? I didn't want to use classical music simply as a gimmick. I had to find an organic connection between classical music and the gospel. And I worked hard at, at you know, figuring out what could that be. And I finally landed on something that I think was the perfect harmonizing theme, if I could put it that way. And it was the theme of joy. So we actually had 90 concerts over a summer. And we called the whole thing the festival of the joy of music. And we'd always start with a joyful piece. But then we would have someone come up and address the audience and say, you know, we hope you enjoyed that. But we also believe that joy isn't simply a passing emotion. We believe there's a, a foundation for joy. And then so slowly... During the concert, we would explain that we live in a creation that is, in, in fact, a composition, a harmonious composition, but it's been flawed by sin. And now there's disharmony and, you know, violence and darkness and so on. And yet the composer, not content to live, leave the peace, you know, in a mess, the composer has entered into the peace. Mm. <laughs> and that's, you know, God the Son becoming one of us to put things right. So during the course of the evening, as we're doing music, we're also weaving in the story of the gospel. That is absolutely incredible. Did you, did you have a lot of people come? Uh, yeah, because it was, you know, we did PR. I, I was the, I did everything. This is before computer age. So I had to hand make posters, but we also, here's the other thing. I, I was convinced that if we were to serve the church, we had to work with local churches. So part of what I did during that year was I traveled the country with a little briefcase and opened it up like a fuller brush salesman and said, could you use an orchestra this summer for a <laughs> <laughs> And so we, we worked every, every concert was in conjunction with the local church for follow-up purposes. Our, by the way, we had three groups touring that summer and the choir in which my wife and I sang was led by Don Hustad, which was who was Billy Graham's organist. Yeah. And Don, after the summer, was so inspired himself that he wrote up an account of it. It's an essay called Bach as Missions Outreach, and you can find it in the International Review of Missiology. <laughs> wow. I didn't know you had that connection to Don Hustad. Yeah. Yeah. He was my choir director for a summer. <laughs> I, did, I didn't know that. See, I was in choir. So that's how I met my wife. Was okay. in choir. So that's very, very interesting. Did you, did you speak French when you went to France? Uh, I could read it and, and speak haltingly when I arrived. And then I became fluent as the year went on. So when you and your wife get into a fight, do you do it in English or French? Well, I had to woo her in French. So that was the highest motivation for really kind of mastering <laughs> this language. Uh, I didn't want to make a gaffe, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm laughing at that because I had Trevor Longman on and he was studying his PhD. And he said, I decided to go into biblical studies because, um, and I had to get good grades because my wife wouldn't make out with me unless I got good grades. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, 
Wow. Another good motivation. <laughs> hey, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's just real. I think it's just real. Love is clean and love is pure. And love is a thing that no doctor can cure. And love is a thing we need for sure. And if you don't got it, we got the music calling you. in a field that is very difficult for many people to understand. I mean, dealing with theology, some people are very intimidated by that, but yet you've remained so true to the scripture and to the person of Jesus. You're one of those academics that I would say it's not lost the, the, you know, the forest of the trees, the, if you have the expression. And you see a lot what's going on in the church. You're training many of the, the future leaders, writers, academics. What are some of the issues that you see as a th- I don't want to say a threat, but a problem or the biggest pressing issues. How about that in the church today? And what can we do about it? So I, I, I'm in higher theological education for a reason. Um, and I would say that one of the biggest challenges the church is facing is, believe it or not, illiteracy. <laughs> and what I mean by that is biblical illiteracy, how to put the big picture together, Cultural illiteracy, you know, are we able to read our culture and understand what's happening? Doctrinal illiteracy, many people don't think doctrine is really that important. And maybe something we could even call ecclesial illiteracy, the the lack of knowledge of how to do church. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's one problem or one nest of problems. A- another one connected, I've believed for some time that Though many of our churches, um, you know, can follow the biblical storyline or at least have a high view of scripture and say they believe it. In fact, what's happening is their imaginations have been taken captive by other stories and people are living out other stories than the Bible. Uh, There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who explains that what makes our age secular isn't that people have secular beliefs, but rather their imagination, the story they tell themselves is a this-worldly story, it's a secular story. And I think even well-meaning, Bible-believing, church-going Christians, simply by the fact that we inhabit a secular culture, we've become secularized to some extent. I, I really do think that's a problem in the church. I know it sounds strange because the church is supposed to be a sacred place, but the secular imagination is a very powerful force. And then we're also modern. And one of the things about moderns is that we're very, um, we're very movable. We're, we, we're mobile. We can move around and we, you know, we do so to, to go to better jobs and so on. We have means of transport. I think part of the modern condition is we've been dislocated. I think we've lost our sense of place. And I think that's a threat to the church because I believe the church is local. It's placed. It's also global, yes. But I think people have lost uh, a sense of, of, of the meaningfulness of their local place. And then uh, the other challenge that everybody is aware of, and it's been a perennial challenge, but I think it's more urgent today. And that is, there's just so many differences that divide the church. And we, we seem to be in a moment of polarization, which I think 
is an, another example of the uh, secular imagination, sort of that uh, polarization in the broader culture uh, invading the church as well. Mm. When you mean secular imagination, I, I, yeah. can you draw that out for us a little bit and sure. explain what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I was going too fast. No, no, not, not at all. I, I think it's amazing. I just want to help people to kind of park on it to see where yeah. that's going there. So the word secular comes from this Latin term seculum, which means world. Mm-hmm. And it means the material world. And so if you're secular in your thinking, you're this worldly. That is, for a secular person, what is most real is the world of matter. Uh, you know, matter in motion, <laughs> atoms, molecules, anything you can touch or sense. Mm-hmm. That's secular. And the spiritual, well, that just isn't real for a secular person. And uh, if you think about it, uh, the secular imagination is pretty, pretty powerful. You know, we have this thing called psychology, which is the study of the soul. But people don't really believe in immaterial souls these days, right? But we know that medicine can affect moods. That's, mm-hmm. We expect that, right? Because I think we've bought into a secular picture of, of what's real. And that includes ourselves. You know, what are we as human beings? Clearly, we're, we're matter. Uh, matter in motion or or matter not in motion gaining weight <laughs> but in any case you know we're 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 physical beings and i think the whole idea of spirituality has become a little elusive to uh, the mm. secular thinker you mentioned that social imaginary and i you're talking about modernity and we had philip jenkins on after he had written his book fertility and faith and he said that the more modernity comes into a place they saw that birth rates went down. It's almost as if the things that embody make us human and have been important historically, family, children, those things go down. Whereas the preoccupation with fame, uh, notoriety, status within a, a secularized world has really, really shifted. And you're right, it's permeated the church. And, and when we when we see that, we we see a lot of different things that are shifting right now. And you mentioned also understanding a biblically illiterate, you mentioned that because people are biblically illiterate, even though we have more resources than we've ever had. But you also mentioned culturally illiterate. Elaborate on that for a moment. Help us to see how we have become culturally illiterate. Yeah, maybe it's an overstatement, but uh, put it this way. When I first started teaching in seminary, if the word culture was used, like intercultural studies, it was always over there, you know, other people mm-hmm. had culture and we weren't really thinking about culture. Now, happily, I think that's all changed. I think people are aware that, you know, we in the West, we're a culture too. And, you know, there's a thing called North American culture. I think we're aware of that now, but simply knowing that it's there isn't the same as knowing what it is. Mm. And, I think oftentimes it's the artists among us, you know, the poets, the novelists, the painters, they're the ones that are trying to articulate what's actually happening at the moment. And theologians, my kind of people, uh, you know, we are, we're, we're, may, we're maybe slow to understand. And, and so what happens is the church has to react to cultural developments that it doesn't fully understand or that at least have got ahead of it. So uh, I actually taught a course for a number of years at Trinity called Cultural Exegesis, where the whole thrust of the course is 
you know, trying to help students get, develop principles for understanding culture and for being able to read culture the way we read the Word of God. The, I think the reason it's important is, uh, well, theology is the application of Scripture to all areas of life. And seminaries typically do really well in helping students to learn the biblical languages, you know, to, to exegete the biblical texts. But if you can't relate the Bible to today's world, then that isn't really helpful for the pastor. And so it's that relating to today's world that I mean by cultural understanding. You know, do we understand what's going on? I think a lot of people feel that there are changes happening. They see different things happening, but they don't understand why the changes, what's, what's behind it in who's interested in it, and then what does it mean? Mm. So uh, the course um, that I taught on cultural exegesis, the, the big finish, the research paper, was the students had to choose something in the culture, and then they had to read it or interpret it. And uh, I, I got some fascinating papers from that course, you know, people picking something in the culture that they didn't quite get, and they wanted to, to go deeper and understand it. And so I, I have very pleasant memories of Christmas holidays uh, surrounded not by gifts, but by student term papers, <laughs> you know, on these. <laughs> sometimes they'd choose a film. Sometimes they'd choose a musician, you know, and I, I learned a lot by by reading these student papers. And uh, it got to the point that I started sharing some of the best papers with other family members. So I have members, I have memories of Christmas where we're all sitting around the tree reading Trinity Divinity School papers. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm laughing because I was in that course. Hey. <laughs> I don't think my paper was being passed around, but that's, well, that's okay. You never know. You never know. Uh, I, I do want to say, I, I, maybe you know this, Travis, but um, at one point I actually pitched the idea to a publisher that they should publish you know, mm -hmm. some of the papers from this class. The publishers were pretty skeptical, to say the least, <laughs> but they actually did it. There's a book out there called Everyday Theology, Theology, How to Read Cultural Texts and Interpret Trends. And uh, it's out there. It's actually sold much better than the publishers thought. Uh, maybe it's a little dated now because the things in culture we were looking at are maybe 15 years old now, 10 to 15 years old. But still, I think it's, it, was a, it was a helpful workbook, you know, a series mm -hmm. of exercises in how to make sense of, of what's happening all around us in biblical well, and theological terms. Th this is the thing that I, I do appreciate about you and your work. And having been in that class, this is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, is because we say at Apollos Watered, water your faith, water your world. And the question is, is what is your world? And the world is shifting so fast. Mm -hmm. um, because people are saying in, in some ways, stop the church. I want to get off, you know, because the world is spinning. COVID has changed things and the culture was already spinning. It's, it's just amazing what's happened in the last 20, 25 years. If you were, to, I remember Carl Truman in his book where he mentioned, if you were to go back to 1994 and talk to his grandfather and say, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, he would have laughed at you. 
And now that's become a common understanding in our cultural lexicon, if you will. And and so now we're we're left with kind of just scrambling. And we hear people talking about the word of God and returning to the word of God, which is an essential thing. But it's also helping the word of God understand, or as you mentioned, helping people to see the word or how to apply it to understand its outworking. And I and I know I'm putting words in your mouth. And as a theologian, you have to be very, very careful with your wording. But you you talk about the Bible as a as a divine dr- drama. I'm going to let you explain that a little bit because you have a different view than most people I think would look at it. We talk about the Bible being like as a as a document. It's the Word of God. It's infallible. We we look to it, but you see it as an opportunity as a performance script. And again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, and I'm going to mislabel something, and I know you're going to correct it. But tell us a bit about how you see the Word and how we are to how to perform it, if you will. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. You know, we started off this conversation by my telling you about going to Sunday school and coming back with questions about the Bible to my mother and she had to read it. At three years old, by the way, what were the questions you asked as a three-year-old? Well, look, three-year-olds ask really difficult questions like how many eyes does God have? (laughs) (laughs) So, um, All that to say is I I have thought for years that uh, if I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus, I've got to be biblical, but there are so many followers of Jesus. and, And it just raised the question to my mind, what does it mean to be biblical? And that's the question, by the way, that really kind of catapulted me into doing doctoral studies. I just didn't have a satisfactory answer to that question. What does it mean to be biblical? So I think views of scripture are really important. If we don't know what the Bible is, we we won't know how to use it rightly. And I've been influenced by C.S. Lewis, who says, you know, the first rule of interpretation is you have to know what kind of thing you're interpreting or dealing with. And I think he would say that applies to everything from corkscrews to cathedrals, as well as the biblical canon. (laughs) And in the canon, of course, we have many types of things, right? We have many kinds of literature. And so as a systematic theologian, I think I've tried very hard to do justice to the many forms of literature in the Bible and not treat it as if it were a geometry textbook, you know, simply with axioms, simply with principles, or even a handbook of information, you know, simply with with bits of data that I have to somehow collect and make sense of. There are theologians who approach the Bible uh, as, you know, a book of information that has to be collected and arranged properly. And there's a place for that, to be sure, But I think the Bible is more than just a handbook of information or even a a handbook of moral principles. So my starting point is I I see the Bible as human discourse and divine discourse. It's ultimately God's word. And it's more than information. That term discourse is key. Discourse. uh, It has to do with the use of words. So I would... I define discourse as, and this is what I think the Bible is, something somebody says to someone in some way for some purpose. And so to be biblical, I've got to do justice to every one of those phrases. Who's saying something? 
What are they saying? Um, how are they saying it? For what purpose are they saying it? I, I have those questions in mind every time I read scripture. And, and here's the other thing that I've discovered. Simply having a high view of scripture or a so-called high view of scripture does not guarantee right interpretation. That, when I, when I realized that, that was an aha moment for me. You know, no matter how high, no matter how many eyes I use to describe scripture, infallible, inspired, inerrant, no matter how many eyes, that doesn't guarantee that I will read it rightly. Did you hear that? Simply having a high view of scripture does not guarantee right interpretation. That's a bit jarring for many of us. We can have a high regard for God's word and still not interpret it correctly. That's why we need to understand the Bible as a text. It's also why we look at history, because we can see how many well-meaning, zealous, Bible-believing Christians have misinterpreted the Bible, and that has led to some very crazy things. Interpreting the Bible involves coming to the Bible with a right heart, filled with the Spirit, surrendering to what God may have, whatever it is. but. It also means examining its genre and learning that there are rules in how we go about interpreting it. It's not that we can't understand the Bible. We can as the Holy Spirit guides us, but God doesn't rule out human responsibility in the interpretive process. As 2 Timothy 2.15 reminds us, work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Why would he have us to work hard if we didn't have some measure of responsibility? We know that the Spirit guides us into truth, but when paired with this, we see that the Spirit is guiding us as we work hard to understand it. As Dr. Van Hooser said, we live in an age of biblical illiteracy and cultural illiteracy. We have to familiarize ourselves with the Bible and what it is. Who are the human authors the Holy Spirit used to write it? Who are they writing to? And what were they writing? And what does it mean to the original audience? And what does it mean for us? These are all questions that need to be answered if we are to interpret the Bible correctly. As I said at the onset, this was a jam-packed conversation. I'm amazed at how he can make the profound simple. That's why I love, love, love Dr. Van Hooser's statement that the Bible is a divine drama, a performance script. I don't know about you, but the first time that I heard that, it, it seemed a bit off-putting. I, I didn't know exactly what he meant, but the more that I've thought on it, the more that I've chewed on it, molded over, I see that he's right. The Bible is more than a handbook of information or moral principles. I have seen people use the Bible as, as a means of like spiritual abuse, as a means of controlling other people, and not understanding that it is this performance script. It's a divine discourse. God is revealing himself to us, even through us, for a specific purpose. We're going to talk more about that purpose next week. How's that for a cliffhanger? And I'd love to know what stuck out to you from this episode. What stopped you and made you think and made you go, wait, what? Send us a line on Instagram or Facebook and let us know. And be sure to check out this conversation and many others on our YouTube channel. Thank you for your support and please help us out by sharing this episode and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps others find us. 
Thanks to our Apollos Water team for helping us water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody.